hey, we know that you want to get to this podcast, and you're probably downloading it right away after a new episode airs on HBO, right? Right? You are. You are subscribed and all of that. Here's what I ask you to do in addition to that. Leave us a written review wherever you get your podcasts, if you can. That enters you into a contest to win some cool His Dark Material merchandise. I mean, we love stars, but please, if you can, leave a written review. But if that's not possible with your podcast app, then the way you enter the contest is to tweet us a three-word description of the His Dark Materials episode that you just saw. That's tweet at the Dust Podcast, or you can send emails to dustpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call 314-269-0421 and leave a voicemail. Also, we would love it if you would join us on Tuesday nights, 8.30 Eastern PM at talkshoe.com. That's talk like what we do and shoe like what we wear. Talkshoe.com. Just search in their browse tab for His Dark Materials. Find the live show. Find the numbers that are associated with that and call in. Okay. I suppose we've held it off long enough. Here's the podcast covering Season 2, Episode 2, The Cave. Sorry, I gave it away already, so it won't be as fun for me the second time. That's all right, this is all standing. No, I'm just... Great! Part of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com. Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about the books of his dark materials, it does so in the context of the most recent book. And when it talks about the television show on the BBC and HBO, it does so in the context of the most recent episode. You've been warned. You're listening to The Dust, a His Dark Materials podcast. Welcome to The Dust, another episode covering His Dark Materials on HBO and BBC One. Also, with reference to the book series by Philip Pullman, thanks for joining us. Today we are looking at Season 2, Episode 2, or if you prefer, Episode 10, entitled The Cave. Episode was written by Jack Thorne and Francesca Gardner. And directed by Jamie Childs. I first learned of Jamie Childs uh, with Doctor Who episodes. I don't know uh, how much stuff he's actually directed. I never go that far into the research. I just like, they look good. All right, the director did a good job. It had the right emotional pace. Good director. My name is Double M. Double M. Matt Murdick. And I am joined by someone who will not allow you to put her in a backpack to carry her around. It's Holly. Hey, everybody. I don't think I can fit in a backpack. It'd be a very large backpack, but no. Yeah, it's not happening. It's not happening at all. So, Holly, we saw the internet break, basically, a week ago Sunday when this episode aired on BBC One. How did you feel about this episode? You can go ahead and give me your rating. Remember, folks, we use doubles now for our ratings. I gave this episode eight and a half out of ten double M's. Wait, double M's. Mary Malone's and double P's. Double P's? Packed fans. Oh, a double-double. Uh, yeah, I was very excited to meet Mary Malone. Um, as a book reader, I knew we were going to meet her very soon in this episode, and she exceeded my expectations. I really didn't enjoy the Magisterium stuff that much. I like that we're seeing more of it to kind of fill, um, you know, kind of fill in the episode and 
we get a lot of Mrs. Coulter in those scenes, but overall the Magisterium scenes just kind of dragged for me. So that's why I, I left my ranking at an eight and a half. Well, eight and a half is not bad, but I guess my difference between uh, my opinion and, and your opinion, Holly, the key difference is that I, I actually liked seeing that behind the scenes Magisterium stuff. I liked seeing how everything kind of churned and you see how awful the magisterium really is. I thought that that uh, helped lay out a really clear line of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. So my rating is a full point higher than yours. I gave mine 9.5 out of 10, what I like to call double G's. Double G's? Grumpy grandpas, which mm. it appears you are in comparison to me. Yep. In in some ways, but not a packed pan. That's for certain. I do like grumpy grandpas, what can I say? So I really found this episode on the other side for the Magisterium stuff uh, very beautifully emotional. I, like you, I loved the introduction of Mary. I thought that that character in, uh, was fabulous and that uh, Simone portrayed her perfectly. Uh, I loved the Will and the Lyra stuff, especially uh, in the garden when they were rebuilding the trust that both of, both of them have lost. Um. I thought you saw the the kind of horrifically human stuff of the Magisterium and those grandparents, those grumpy grandparents. And uh, I think the thing that really rose it for me, uh, which I will get into in great detail in just a short while here, uh, was Lauren Balfe's score. Um, that, for the first time in a long time, made me really miss playing music for a living or, or creating music for a living because some of the stuff that he did with this episode was... Um, it, it's what separates, uh, the good composers, uh, from the bad ones or even the ones that will win Emmys or will win Grammys. It separates this, this is the kind of stuff that puts him on that level rather than just, you know, just a composer doing a TV show. Just scrolling through Reddit and Twitter after watching the episode and watching other, seeing other people's reactions, a lot of people had really great things to say about the music. And so I think it affected a lot of viewers so very good job Mr. yeah Ruff. yeah um and as we saw the in the internet broke on that scene which we can't really talk about why except in the book section but uh we saw the internet break on, on on that scene and i feel like that uh part of it was helped by the score it kind of set everybody up for that particular easter egg let's just put it that way so absolutely yeah. What did you guys think about the episode? Listeners, we want to know uh, because we're going to spend this whole podcast telling you what we think about the episode. Uh, but we want to hear exactly what you think about the episode. And the way you tell us is you tweet to at the dust podcast, all one word on Twitter. Find us, follow us and tweet to us. You can also send emails to dustpodcast at gmail.com. We don't get too many of those. You can call 314-269-0421. You can leave a voicemail if you'd rather do it that way. Remember, phones do work that way still. I, I know we don't use them that way, but phones, this grumpy grandpa is telling you, you can actually use your phone uh, to leave us a voicemail, and we will be happy to play it on the podcast. I also want to tell you about another way you can use those pesky phones so that you can actually do something besides text people. Uh, you can call in to our fan call-in show on Tuesday nights at 8.30 Eastern, and we talk about the episode that aired on HBO the night before. Just call in, 
and tell us what you thought of the episode. We put a special episode out at the end of the week of the fan call in. Plus, I add a little bit of extra bonus music stuff in that podcast as well. How do you do that? Well, if you want the information, you can simply go to TalkShoe.com for those details. Uh, that's Talk, like what we do, and Shoe, like what we wear. If you go to TalkShoe.com and search for The Dust or His Dark Materials, we should pop up and you can find out all of the information. Or just hit us up again on Twitter at The Dust Podcast. We're happy to tell you how to join us. Also, remember that we are now a proud member of the Double P family of podcasts. That's why we use a lot of doubles now when we do our podcast, uh, double P's and such, because it's part of the Double P family. And if you want to hit them up for all of their great other podcasts, feel free to follow them on Twitter at the word double, the letters PHQ. You can go to Facebook.com, the word double, the letters PHQ. Or you can search for Double P Media on YouTube. I'll give you a little cheat, youtube.com slash user slash fit and trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. And right now, Bubba and Catfish, our podfathers, so to speak, are currently covering The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. They have a podcast separate from the main feed. It's called Parsec Passion. Check that podcast out. Uh, my musical analysis of Ludwig's score is also on that. I appear every week until they fire me. Mm. Speaking of music analysis, Lauren Balfe was very, very sneaky in this episode. He snuck in a lot of themes that we know, but made them sound like they were new. It was very interesting. He's a sneaky guy, and he really did a magnificent job with the music in this episode. And because of that, I'm being sneaky, too. I'm going to put the music analysis section up front here first. And that's also a test because we want to see if you're listening to the entire podcast or if you're just skipping to the music part or if you're skipping past the music part. We want to know what you think about this podcast so that we can make it better for you as we go along. And yes, Lauren Balf does get the Sneaky Theme Award uh, probably for the year because some of this stuff was really remarkable. A lot of themes that you know but you may not have recognized. If you aren't into the music, here's your first test. You can skip ahead, 11 minutes and 15 seconds. And if you are into the music, stick around. But if you're on YouTube, we don't do them there. So just wait a couple seconds. We'll be right back. This looks more like our Oxford. That is so sneaky good. Oh, I love Mr. Balf and everything he does with the music in this series. It's amazing. That's the scene from when Lyra had discovered the Pitt Rivers Museum and all of the exhibits from the north. She decided that's where she wants to go. And this is her traversing to the Pitt Rivers Museum. This music accompanies it. But did you hear the theme that we've heard throughout all of series one and a lot? In series two, especially in this episode, the Lyra prophecy theme was the melody that was in there. 
but it was way different than the way we're normally used to hearing it. Normally, we're used to hearing it like this. But he throws you off right off the bat by changing a couple of things, a couple of the things that I find key to good film scoring. First of all, he changes the rhythm, the meter, and the tempo. Instead of the normal kind of almost 4-4 kind of feel that would count 1, 2, 3, 4, we get this in a 6-4 or a 6-8 kind of feel. And before we even hear that melody, it gets set up by this. Now, I can't really duplicate what was done with the entire orchestra on the piano, but uh, this is the best duplication that we can produce on a piano for that setup, like this. That's a lot of energy, right? I mean, it, it adds pump and it adds a little bit of a lightness to it because of the six count. It gives a kind of this bounce to it, which makes it not quite as foreboding as the theme usually sounds. What else makes it sound less foreboding? The harmony that is applied. Another one of my keys to good film scoring. This is a different set of harmonies applied to this melody. and the melody is actually rhythmically changed. Some notes that we normally hear held out more go by quickly. And some notes that we normally hear go by quickly go at the same speed as the rest of them. And that makes it the same melodic shape. Again, melody shape is part of my things too. You have the same shape. It's still going up and down in the same way. With the different kinds of harmonies applied, the different kinds of rhythmic inflections applied, makes it less recognizable, yet still recognizable. When the melody comes in, it sounds like this. And again, I can't exactly reproduce what happens uh, in a full orchestra. I mean, that's just a gorgeous application of all the tools a composer uses in order to keep something somewhat recognizable and still carry thematic weight to the scene, yet apply different emotion to it. These are the kinds of things that really separate just good composers from great composers. They're what separate a really nice film score from an Emmy-winning film score or a BAFTA-winning film score or a Grammy-winning film score. These are the kinds of things that make a huge difference. Subtlety, yet sincerity. Love it. There was the scene that we watched the internet break on the Sunday that it aired on the BBC. And that scene not only broke because of 
whatever that realization was, which we can't discuss in the TV only part, but also because of the music that was underneath it. It was a really, really stirring piece of music. And I may be crazy, but I think that it also was a sneaky, sneaky rendition of something that we hear every single episode, the main theme. I could be wrong, but there's something about the melodic shape, again, how the melody goes up and down, that told me that this music that we heard was a major variation of the normally minor main theme that we hear. Think of this figure from the main theme and its melodic shape. Now, as I said, this implies a minor key, dark, serious. That's what minor does to us. So it implies this kind of chord. But you don't really hear that kind of chord in the scene at the Botanical Garden, do you? Instead, it has a major sound to it, like this. But if we take those notes that I played just a few minutes ago, that figure, that motif from the main theme, and apply that major key from that chord that we just heard to that, it changes some of the notes, but the shape stays the same. So instead of getting what we heard before, we get a melodic shape in the major key that sounds like this. But we're still not quite there yet. The notes sound right, the shape is correct, but the time that it takes to play those notes seems different. So how do we get there? We take those same notes, but we just alter the rhythm of those notes, how they fall against the beats that we count. That's what the rhythm is. We change the rhythm to this. Now that's beginning to sound a lot more recognizable, correct? Now all we have to do is add different kinds of harmony to what we're used to hearing for this. We're used to hearing this melodic figure against maybe just one or two chords. But here, Mr. Balf harmonizes each note. Since he's changed the rhythm, he needs more action in the harmony. And he's applying major harmony to it. So it sounds like this. There it is. That's what we heard in that garden scene when Will and Lyra started talking about trust. Now, is there an actual connection? Eh, maybe I'm crazy. But it didn't happen just once. It happened twice. The first time we got the major variation. The second time we got the normal variation. So we start again with this melodic figure. And I'm just going to skip ahead and change the rhythm and 
the harmony, and we get this. I was genuinely moved by this scene on multiple fronts, admittedly, but I was genuinely moved by how music functions as art, just by the way that these variations from something that you already recognize, that's why it feels familiar. Plus, remember, this is their mission. These are two children of prophecy now. They are on a mission. And what is a main theme? It is a mission statement for the series. But to be able to apply it in such ways that you can create such a gamut of different emotions, depending on what you're watching, what the dialogue is saying, it truly is a remarkable feat. I I was moved by Mr. Balfe's score this time. That doesn't happen to me very often. Normally I can break it down and say, yeah, yeah, this is why you feel this way. Today, this score made me feel this way too. And I'm going to leave you with the scene. We'll be back with Holly in a second. I don't need to trust anymore. I didn't either. Holly, you ready to get into talking about this episode? Let's do it. All right. Well, it seems like we're always going to get a previously on, which I'm okay with. This time it was only 50 seconds. It was less than a third of what it was last week. Uh, But then we go right to, hey, it's the next morning the last shot in the previously on is will and he's about to get uh, looks like a specter's about to get him uh, but now nah, nothing happened it was just a little prank that they pulled on us uh it was actually what the show does we call it a double p a double p perils propaganda uh... and i really wasn't bothered by the fact i i know that i saw some things on on twitter where people were actually a little bothered by the fact that it, it seemed like it was just set up just make it look like will was in trouble but uh you know i do whatever you got to do to fake him out and make him come back next week that's what i say i could see why people would be bothered by the cliffhanger just for the sake of having a cliffhanger when there was really no danger but i guess you know it's really just supposed to show us that the danger out there is real and that will is close to being in danger but not yet I agree. And, you know, it it does. It kind of reminds you that they're checking him out. They know he's not of age yet, but they are checking him out. So they're like, it's like when you're watching the food in the oven, like to just finish, like you're watching like the dough rise. If you're like baking bread and you just got to like get it at the right moment. And they're just, that's what the specters are doing. They're just like staring and waiting for that right moment to where it's going to be the most tasty. Yeah, Will has risen. Let's get him. <laughs> so we'll kind of try to group these storylines into as as cohesive through line as possible for our characters. Uh, and we start off, of course, in Sitagaze with Lyra and Will. And folks, just as forewarning, I'm going to use a lot of doubles here at the beginning. And then I kind of got a little lazy with my recap. And then I got uh, reinvigorated towards the end. So Lyra actually is ready to do some double C when she goes to Oxford. 
Double C? That's cape conduct. Mm. Uh, she also wants to do some double S. Double S? That's sombrero sporting. <laughs> but Will just, he says no. He says no way. They got to blend in. Um, it's obvious that Pan doesn't think very much of Will's tastes either. Uh, he's, he's like, oh, what a spoil sport. But, you know, Will's a wanted man, so he, he has to... He has to try and keep a low profile, and he doesn't think that uh, Lyra's clothing choice would help that accomplish that. Uh, and he's got to get moving because his cell phone's only on a ten percent charge, um, and it also means keeping a low profile. They got to put Pan in the bag, which uh, of course uh, Pan does not approve of. Not only is it uh, something that you wouldn't normally do to your demon, but the bag stinks, man. That's not cool. But Will really makes a case for the fact that he, you know, he likes it there. He feels safe there in Chittagaze, and he doesn't uh, want the window that he's using to go back and forth between worlds found and somebody else to come through and get him. Um, again, that makes him blissfully unaware of those things that are hanging around him probably all the time, right? Why didn't Pan just, like, become a moth and hide in Lyra's shirt? It seems like that would have been more comfortable for both of them. He could be, you know, warm, like in her, in her shirt, you know, just hiding, stay out of sight close uh, to her instead of like bumbling and bouncing around in, in the bag, uh, as she's running through Will's Oxford. I don't know. Yeah. I don't understand. Well, I, you know, I, I totally see that. Uh, I feel like that they could have come up with a better solution, but this one was comical in a way, not nearly as comical as uh, Lyra throwing some shade on Will for him denying the hat. I yeah. love that. That that arch uh, eyebrow. <laughs> I was just like, whoa, I don't want to make Lyra mad uh, ever. I'll never come in on her clothing if I ever have to tell her anything. That's my Lyra face for this episode. And last week it was when she said, uh, oh, don't grow up too fast or the specters are going to get you. And the face she made at him during that. It's just like perfect, like kid sarcasm stuff. I, I really like it. Yeah. And the cape. I thought she looked great in the cape. But um, Will... And and the mole from the Incredibles uh, definitely share a, a disgust for capes in general. So I guess that's good. It looks like Will has won this battle for reasons of you know logic. But uh, off we go. Will's door into Takaze is also near the gate, uh, which his lets out on the other side near a gate as well. Lyra is ready to take charge. She just runs out ahead, and Will's like, oh, "Wait, wait, 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 wait." Uh, Lyra uh, runs out into the street of Will's Oxford and uh, tries to tackle a car. The car pretty much wins, but Lyra says she's just not used to cars that fast. Pan is fine, by the way. Thanks for asking. Uh, and uh, the Oxford, she does say, Will's Oxford does look a little bit different to her. Uh, and they walk past a parked car. But uh, guess who's in the car? He's checking her out in the mirror. It's Lord Boreal. Yes. He's sitting in the car and he just happens to see her and bam, we go to opening credits. I was hoping they would keep the car hitting Lyra in here because it happens in the book. Like immediately she goes through the door and like, boom, gets hit by a car. And it's 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 not funny, but it's it's kind of funny. Um, I'm just really glad they kept it in. So um, sorry yeah. if that's a slight small book spoiler for y'all. This happens in the book. She's fine. Yeah, it, Everything's it's fine. It's only not funny if someone gets hurt. And, you know, she ended up with a scraped knee. She was actually playing it down a lot more than she probably should have been. But also, you know, Will was probably being a little bit overprotective, which we'll talk about later. Um, I, I really don't have much of anything here, except that during the course of the time when Lyra was running through uh, 
Chitagase and then out to the street and then past Boreal's car, a lot of the themes, uh, again, the musical transitions were great. You had the Children of the Prophecy, kind of the, just the accompaniment at the beginning when she was doing the whole changing of the clothes. And then it went to the straight theme when they were running through Chitagase and she was running through the gate. <laughs> And then, uh, of course, we heard Lord Boreal's theme uh, when she passed the, his car and he was checking her out in the mirror. So we move on to Lyra's Jordan uh, theme, the the kind of the fun Lyra theme being played as uh, she's kind of running into people and exploring all of Will's Oxford. And she looks for the equivalent of her own Jordan College, but uh, Will has never heard of that. She goes running through the streets, running through buildings, uh, totally not being a, a proper Oxford student, that's for sure. She's not blending in at all. Uh, but when she gets to the area where it's supposed to be, hey, it's not there. It's a construction site. And uh, Pan notes that this isn't like our Oxford at all. Maybe they're building Jordan College right there. It just hasn't been built yet. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. Maybe that is the the idea. Uh, Will does start to tend to Lyra's injury, and uh, I believe Lyra was probably lying, uh, spinning a tale about falling from a tree, because she does like to lie. Even Mrs. Coulter called her out on that. Um, and, uh, and, of course, Pan called her out on that a couple of times this episode, but she was spinning a tale of how the librarian had to carry her all the way back to Jordan College from uh, the Botanical Gardens. And that's when they find out that they have the botanical gardens in common in their respective Oxfords. And Lyra tries to find a comparison between her alethiometer and Will's phone as Will is doing his double S. Double S? A cell swap. Wow. See what I did there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm a cheater. Yeah. Just like catfish, I cheat sometimes. It's a cell swap. She admits to asking the alethiometer about Will. She says that it had told her that he was a murderer, and that, that shakes Will to the bone. Poor kid. He responds that he really had no choice. Uh, but they move on, and uh, Will is evidently a pretty popular guy uh, because his cell, with an S is uh, b buzzing and buzzing and buzzing with billions of texts on his phone. Uh, they're all from mom. Mom is clearly worried, and he tells Lyra that he has to check on her. Uh, so he's starting to go running off, and he says that uh, he'll meet her at the Botanical Gardens, the place where they both know where that's at, at 5 p.m. And, of course, uh, as you mentioned uh, or called him earlier, Holly, uh, Double P. Uh, double P? Well, you know the answer to that. It's Packed Pan. It's Packed Pan. Yes. Uh, see, he, he says that uh, he sh that Lyra shouldn't have called Will a murderer. Mm. Probably not very polite of her. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess Lyra was doing this out of naivete, but I'm not exactly sure that I would have compared my alethiometer to a phone. Although, by the way that Will described it to her, I guess you could say, yeah, yeah I guess it kind of sounds like what her alethiometer does for her. Uh, giving her news and and all of that stuff, uh, but not exactly the same thing. He was he was being very vague in his description of the phone and what it does. And now that I think about it, I don't recall seeing any phones in Lyra's world. I'm sure they maybe exist, but what if they don't? And so when he says, "Oh, you use it to phone people," like does she even know what that means? Yeah, it could be uh, something that she's not all that aware of at all. Um, 
I respect the fact that he was trying to be vague because he didn't, uh, you know, he, he knows now he's dealing with a multiverse. Smart kid. He doesn't want to contaminate another another world uh, with his thoughts and his his inventions. Uh, Lyra seems to have no problem with that as far as her alethiometer goes. The other thing I think about as far as his cell goes, that's cell with an S, uh, his poor mom. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine being a mother and your your husband went missing a long time ago? And now your son has gone missing. Uh, you're already a troubled person. We know this about about Will's mom. She's very troubled. And you send text after text after text, and there's no answer. Every time there's no answer, it just has to build and build and build in her anxiety. I felt terrible for mom at that point. Yeah, it's pretty sad. It is. It's very sad. Will's story is a sad story. It really know? is. Yeah. Just another thing about phones versus alethiometers is the... Uh, phones <laughs> while you do get some information it does also tell a lot of lies and fake news so i i'm gonna go with the alethiometer because it only tells the truth it only tells the truth um good or bad it tells you the truth well lyra is going to be using that alethiometer uh, as she makes her way to the pit rivers museum uh she sees a poster that that throws her in that direction and uh, she uses the alethiometer to figure out uh, where to find the right scholar that she needs to talk to about dust. And it tells her St. Peter's College and uh, to look for a room in that college with a mountain on the door. And also it says, don't lie to the scholar and help the boy find his father. So Lyra's kind of puzzled all, by all this, but she's on her way out the door. She's going to head to the out of the museum and towards St. Peter's. Uh, she's going through some old exhibits, and one of them lights up and reacts to Lyra. But the best part, of course, lo and behold, uh, she runs smack dab into Lord Boreal uh, in the middle of the trepanning exhibit. And uh, she kind of mocks interest about it. And he calls himself Charles and he kind of box interest in it. And she calls herself Lizzie and his game is probably a little bit better. He's prepared for his, his uh, false identity because he's got a card that says his name is Charles Latham right on it. He says that he's a collector. And if she has any interest or knows anybody that has any interest in some kinds of collections, then call him. And I'm like, Whoa, God, only Boreal could say something like that. Exactly. To only and only to Lyra, because in our world, kids know better than to talk to strangers. And I'm guessing they don't have this rule in Lyra's world, and maybe they don't have sex trafficking either. I don't know. All I'm guessing is that uh, Charles doesn't know any better either, uh, because he. <laughs> Uh, I'm surprised that somebody didn't come and arrest him. <laughs> I know, right? They should have had like a guard in this in the back of the scene, just like eyeing him suspiciously. But like, what's going on here? Why are you giving your business card to a little girl? What is what is happening? That is too fishy. Yeah, score here was once again magnificent all through aleth the alethiometer search. Uh, there was um, a hint of the alethiometer motive coupled with the main theme loved all of that i keep talking about this music because i've only really talked about two things in my music uh section so i just keep on actually before we move on we talked about this in the uh book section last week because there's there's a little bit of a swap going on here i believe in terms of who knows who boreal is and who doesn't 
Um, and, and it's uh, a little bit different in the books, and it's not that big of a deal. Either way, as a TV viewer, you know who Boreal is, and you don't know maybe whether because Lyra and Boreal were at that scene, at that same party, uh, how this scene is going to play out. So, uh, were you okay with the way that it was played off, Holly? Yes, I was. It felt really true to the books for me still. I'm convinced she doesn't recognize him because I don't think she even saw him in that scene, which we we talked about last week. I'm pretty sure she didn't see him in that scene. I think it might be slightly different in the books where she sees him but doesn't immediately recognize who he is or why he's familiar, but she knows there's something familiar about him. Right. So, yeah, it it is going to play just a little bit differently just for because it's an adaptation. But um, no, it, it worked perfect for me. I liked it. Yeah, so the butterfly effect didn't really uh, cause any real waves in this effect uh, or in this time around. Lyra uh, butterflies her way over to St. Peter's College. I love that shot of her running across the plaza there and Pan's sticking his head out. And then all of a sudden, as she makes the big turn, his head just bounces back and forth. I thought that was hilarious. Uh, poor Pan. That backpack poor. ride is hell on him. Poor Pan. They uh, They find the door with the mountain on it and meet. Dun, 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 Mary Malone, yay, a physics yay. professor. Uh, after getting it straight that uh, women can actually do things in this world as opposed to in her world, uh, and after badly explaining uh, what her actual situation is the first time around, Lyra does finally manage to get it right, and she tells Mary about Roger's death, and she begs for help and understanding uh, about the particles that Mary is studying, and Mary agrees. I know you probably want to talk about some stuff here, don't you? We can talk about some stuff here. First of all, just when I looked at the door as Lyra was going through it, uh, Mary Malone's door, uh, that mountain looked astoundingly like Asriel's mountain to me. Or maybe, I, maybe I'm just mountain insensitive. I don't know. Um, all mountains look to, the same to me. Uh, but it was intentional, right, that that mountain was supposed to look like Asriel's mountain? Uh- I didn't read it that way at all. I thought it was, um, I thought it was like a mountain in China, like art of a mountain in China. That's kind of how I pictured it. But I, but I don't know. I'd have to go back and look and see because I don't even know what Azrael's mountain is called in in that land. Like they don't, I don't think they ever name it. And so if it is, it would have to be a mountain that exists in both worlds. And I don't know if the show has shown enough to prove that. All right. Well, thanks, Holly, for outing me as a mountain racist. I am a mountainist. (laughs) You're a mountainist. How dare you? Second, Mary was watching. I couldn't make out the dialogue, and I didn't read the subtitles. Was it Ravens or Wrens that she was watching? It was Wrens. Oh, I wrote that one down. I was thinking of the – I thought if she said Ravens, I was thinking it might be uh, the uh, master uh, from Jordan College. It might – it would remind us of, of his demon, 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 who was a raven, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I miss yeah. him. I miss the master of Jordan College. He was a good dude. I miss him, too. Also, uh, I actually got a chance to see this entire scene uh, a, a week before the series even started in the UK. Uh, BFI uh, was doing having some of the, the actors and, and the, the show people on as guests, and, and they were also showing scenes and this was one of them and when i saw it that first time that absolutely uh broke me when mary agreed to you know to help lyra it's not even the heaviest scene uh 
probably for most people in this particular episode. But for me, seeing it that early on, uh, being spoiled, admittedly, but seeing it early on really just broke me. I, I, I was, instantly, I was invested in Lyra and Mary's relationship. Yeah, I think it's really sweet. Mary doesn't know this this child just like stumbles into her office and like tells a sad story about her friend and how he died and she just wants to help her and I'm like, well, that's a nice person to just to do that. That's really sweet. I don't think any kid could just walk into any physicist's office and ask them questions and have someone so so nice. Hell, I don't know any students of these professors, most professors who would just let them just walk into their office. That's true. So, yeah, I think you're right there. Uh, But Lyra and Mary, uh, we're continuing to follow Lyra here. Lyra and Mary make an agreement to ask each other or answer each other's questions. And Lyra's questions lead to Mary talking about shadow particles or dark matter, uh, which is on the door, and how these particles seem to be conscious and responds to humans and uh, human-made objects. And when she describes the way that she made contact, it sets off an alarm bell in, in Lyra's mind because she describes a feeling of expectation coupled with patience. And uh, Lyra kind of says, hey, that's the way that I do the alethiometer. Uh, and she shows Mary the alethiometer and then uh, ends up demonstrating it, finds out that uh, Mary was actually a nun before being a scientist, but she uh, left the church and Lyra's argument uh, gets expanded upon because she's talking about how the magisterium would have never let Mary leave the church. And uh, she tells Mary about the magisterium itself and about what she thinks dust is. And all of this leads to Mary agreeing to let Lyra go to what she calls the cave, uh, which is her system for uh, detecting and communicating with these shadow particles love that scene too maybe even more so than the the one that i talked about that we saw on on the bfi preview Uh, this one uh, really got me i loved the scientific explanation to a degree of mary given about lyra's dust she's kind of has a figuring of of what this is and and lyra uh tugging on our emotions by explaining how horrible the magisterium is I'll be honest, I thought if you really want to convince Mary that, you know, you're from another world, just bring Pan out and let him start talking. But I guess that would be a step too far. She didn't seem to question her too hard on the the whole coming from the other world thing, but that's okay. Yeah, I love how Lyra tells her about her past and her and Mary Malone's shocked reaction and how she has to like sit down in the chair. I just it was great. Yeah. So they go to the cave, and Mary hooks Lyra up to the machine. Lyra begins almost instantly causing the strongest response in the machine that Mary has ever seen. And uh, she gets her answer that uh, shadow particles and dust are basically the same thing and tells Mary that she can actually make the machine work better, she thinks. Then uh, she starts mimicking the motions that she does with the alethiometer when she's asking a question and puts herself in that state of mind. And Lyra gets the machine to do something it's never done before, to communicate through translatable symbols, um, just like the alethiometer, except it seems to be this uh, I Ching stuff. 
that uh, Mary has been working with before. And all of this, of course, just blows Mary away. The particles tell Lyra that Mary actually has something important to do, but Mary's got to make the connection um, herself with the particles in order to truly understand and that the I Ching, the Chinese box upstairs that she has in her office, will lead Mary uh, wherever she needs to go in order to fulfill her important purpose. The particles then remind Lyra to meet with Will. <laughs> it's like an alarm clock. Hey, by the way, aren't you supposed to be at the Botanical Garden right now, Lyra? Uh, so uh, she hurries off, but she promises that she will return the next day. I, I love that. I love that bit where it's like, she's going to throw a bunch of information at you very fast. Yeah. Dark matter is dust. Yeah. Here's some pictures, but we can make it into words. Yeah. Mary Malone's important. By the way, you're late. You better go right now. Meet Will. This is, it's funny. It's great. I just love the, the visuals of this. I love the look of the cave using eating is something it's, it's funny. And I wonder I know that the story of the man in the high castle was written long before Philip Pullman's books, but I wonder if the television show used the I Ching, uh, the Amazon series, if they decided to use that based on the idea from Philip Pullman's books, because uh, the Japanese trade minister also uses I Ching, uh, it seems like, uh, to communicate with or to learn about, you know, a multiverse in his own world. Huh thought that that parallel was interesting what have you got for me on this scene like you said i love how she has to like mimic the using the alethiometer to kind of just get herself in that state of mind and how the pictures were like becoming clear as she was doing that i like the reference to the poet john keats and his term for that state of mind is it negative capability i love that and then i was scrolling through reddit after i watched the episode and i saw a term come up by some users called a quantum computer which I'd never heard of before. So when I went to Google that, the images that popped up look just like the computer in the cave. The cave. It looks just like it. Just like it. I was like, oh, wow, wow that's it. So a quantum computer is any device for computation that makes direct use of distinctly, this is from Wikipedia, distinctly quantum mechanic mechanical phenomena. It uses algebraic methods to develop algorithms for computations. There are some in existence. It's used for things like cybersecurity, drug development, finance modeling, traffic optimization, weather forecasting and climate change, and solar capture. But in this case, Mary Malone's using it to see the dark matter. I just thought that was super interesting. And I guess it's possible that scientists are using uh, this quantum computers to try to measure other like quantum mechanic things and things in other worlds um, as close as we can predict those things um i just i love that i love the the accuracy there i didn't know i'm i'm very uneducated and i'm very interested in quantum mechanics but my brain cannot process the information to be able to be for me to be like fully understand it but i'm always a fan when of any any story or franchise that uses quantum mechanics so probably why i love this series so much because it kind of talks about it but I don't know. I just I was so shocked that that was a real thing and that they did a really great job of making that computer look like what I'm seeing on the Internet are real images of the same thing. So, so cool. Wow. 
Well, Holly, not only was that intriguing, but you just went about five levels above my paid grade. So I'm going to go back to Will's storyline from there. Please, Great information. Thank please, you for scientists, sharing. reach out and like correct us, give us more information, put it in layman's terms for us, so I don't have to try to decipher layman's terms from Wikipedia. It's it's hard. It's hard to process, and but I love it. I want to yeah. learn more. That's great. That's fantastic. Uh, Will is on his own little trek. Uh, so it's it's almost kind of like quantum physics where you have two particles at the same place. Uh, a prophecy is now existing at two different places at the same time. Mm. Will uh, is on his own little mission and he sneaks a peek at his mom who's staying with the guy that he left him with to make sure that she's all right. Uh, seeing that she is, he, he actually does a brave thing. He sends her a text which uh, she relays to the man that Will had left her with. And uh, he then has to run off. He, he doesn't want to be around because he wants to keep her safe. And my first thought, and of course, I'm going to go ahead and talk about the towards the end of the episode. But my first thought when I saw this, the look on the guy's face uh, with Mary, I was unsure if he really was as trustworthy as uh, Lyra says that uh, he is, or at least as much as he, he you know, he, he cares for uh, Will's mom. So I, I was worried about that for a minute. That the, the when Lyra found out on the alethiometer that he'll keep her safe, then I was less worried about it. But at first, just seeing it for the first time, I was like kind of unsure about what was going on. Yeah, uh, same for me. If I'm being honest, it did like so a little bit like some seeds of doubt for me. Which in turn, in a later scene, so like I, I was even more doubtful of something of people and taking an interest in Will and whether yeah. they were trustworthy or not. But I do believe the alethiometer. The alethiometer says that his mom is safe. Then his mom's gonna be safe. Yeah, you can't have that whole conversation about the the alethiometer only tells the truth. And the then, shadow uh, particles and do then not say, lie. but oh, but it lied to us about uh, about the person you left your mom with. Mm -mm. Shadow particles do not lie. They may omit, but they do not lie. Okay. And there is a distinct difference in this series. So, Will, you know, he spent all his money on his cell phone, on his new on his new cell phone with an S. And he goes to the lawyer to ask about the trust fund that his dad set up. Actually, he, just, uh, he found that lawyer's name in one of the letters that Will's dad had written. But he's told that because he's a minor, he's going to need a major like mm. his mom or somebody to be able to sign some money over or to get all of the money out of the trust fund. This huge file is brought in and Will learns from that huge file. The lawyer relays to him that uh, his paternal side grandparents are actually right around and he didn't even know that they existed evidently. So I guess because there was such a quabble over the estate, which is mentioned briefly here. And then again, when we meet the grandparents, I guess Will. Will's mom just chose not to tell him about having grandparents at all? I suppose Will's grandparents are not in the book, so I was immediately distrustful, and I I thought maybe there weren't even, like, real grandparents, and it was going to be, like, Lord Boreal's address, <laughs> you know, and it was going to go straight to his house uh, so he could just grab him. Um, I was really suspicious. And I did not want Will to go there. So naturally yeah. he did. So naturally he did. Uh, so Will goes in, to, but he pops in to say hi to Grandma and Grandpa. Um, and they explain further that the, the fight over the estate has kept them estranged from him. And Grandma uh, asks how 
Will's mom is doing. Of course, uh, Grandpa, Grumpy Grandpa, Double G, he thinks that uh, Will is just after money. So uh, he calls the detective inspector, the one that actually works for Lord Boreal, and says, hey, he's here. Um, And uh, Grandma, you know, says, you know, your mom's kind of sick, but you can stay here with us. That starts to set the alarm bells off for Will. And when the letters are mentioned, uh, Will decides to do a little bit of a distraction. He kicks some tea and vacates as quickly as possible as Grandma goes to clean up the tea. Smooth move, Will. Yeah. You know, here's the thing for me. And again, all of my criticisms are very nitpicky. But I guess, do we want to just establish that uh, the the trail again for, for Boreal's people uh, against Will? Because otherwise, I just can't see any reason for this scene at all except just to put a picture of andrew scott on the on the fireplace i mean where's andrew scott please give me andrew scott right now um no i i think kind of like i was saying earlier we were talking about the man watching will's mom i think this had me suspicious but i think the point was to show that will cannot trust anyone in his world that knows him because people are looking for him and i think this whole scene was just to to kind of remind us like he really is in danger even his family will betray him to the people that are looking for him right on well will and lyra get back together at the botanical garden lyra is all excited she's late but she's excited to tell will uh about her discoveries uh at st peter's college and with mary malone and she's gonna need to come back will you know he's a punctual person he's kind of miffed of course he's really miffed because he's in trouble he knows it and he feels unsafe and uh when she says he needs to come back he wonders why he's even there in the first place why he should care and then she tells him about what the alethiometer had told her earlier about finding his father she shows him the alethiometer using the alethiometer she talks she tells about how the the letters the killing all of that comes up again uh, and Will is once again traumatized by recounting it. But Lyra's message from the alethiometer is that Will's mother is safe. The man that she's with is kind. And also that they definitely need to find his father. He doesn't know who to trust. And she says uh, she won't betray him because she's betrayed someone before. And it felt awful. There's another acknowledgement of Roger there. Mm-hmm. Will worries about leaving his mother behind. Lyra, you know, she she kind of ponders that maybe if Will is connected to Chitakaze, then uh, maybe dad is too. They kind of look out over the scenery there at the botanical garden at this bench, and they realize that they both like this place, uh, the way it looks, um, and uh, kind of the way that it's brought them together to uh, trust each other a little more. And that, to me, is what this scene is all about. Uh, you know, it, it, we've seen from the very beginning, Lyra, she didn't even want to trust the alethiometer anymore when she first we first saw her in this series. Um, and now she's trying to extend trust to Will. Uh, she's trying to be trustworthy to Will. She kind of took the advice that the alethiometer gave her regarding Mary and just uh, kind of strung it out through her whole existence there in Will's Oxford uh, it's a it's a complete 180 turn from where she was at the beginning of the of this season, uh, which I loved. Um, and there was a lot of emotion in this scene, uh, and I I love that Lyra is putting her, you know her trust out there and and offering it. So it, to me, it was huge. 
Yeah, absolutely. Definitely the most emotional scene for me in the whole sh- in the whole episode. The location was so beautiful. Oh my goodness. Oh, so pretty. What a really nice place. I like it there too. Um, Will and Myra, yeah. I really like it there too. And we have a lot more to say about this scene in our spoiler section. There you go. We got to take a brief detour here before we lump everything else together, or we can just say we're starting everything else together. But after Lyra leaves... Uh, we're back with uh, Mary Malone and uh, a colleague of hers, Oliver, uh, and they're talking about their experience or her experience with Lyra. Oliver's just more interested in money. He needs to get, you know, how are we going to keep the lights on is basically what he said. Uh, but uh, Mary seems pretty certain that Oliver will be even more convinced once he actually sees Lyra in action when Lyra returns. I don't know how money works in in universities anymore. Oxford obviously is a, is a high dollar uh, university, but for projects like this, I would imagine you need a lot of additional funding. So I don't really blame Oliver for being a damper on it. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you made the machine do this. Do you know how much energy that cost us? Do you know how much that cost us today? Okay. So, yeah, I mean, he wasn't that exasperated about it, but I, I just, I guess, exaggerating a little bit. Um, I, I, I am double Eing. Double Eing? exaggerating exasperation okay (laughs) (laughs) uh but you know i mean where where do colleges get this kind of money i have no idea but uh maybe oliver will find some so that they can keep the lights on long enough for lyra to do something else can't they just like apply for a grant or something is that how that works i don't know you gotta write grants you gotta write grants uh but you know there's there's a difference between being a, a, a brilliant physicist and being somebody i know people who make a living just writing grants for other people that's pretty amazing. They do it for musicians, but they, they totally, uh, they get paid well for it. Uh, and they do a good job. Everything else. And that means all of this stuff that Holly just absolutely loves. All of this stuff at the Magisterium. All my favorite bits. All her favorite bits. I mean, it turns out that uh, McPhail and Coulter did indeed uh, succeed in their plan of a double C. Double C? Cardinal killing. That's killing with a C. McPhail, keep cheating. I'm I'm, I'm taking a page from Catfish. McPhail is graduated to uh, quote unquote acting cardinal, and he uh, at the funeral he tells this tale of witnessing the witch strike the old cardinal down, and he basically declares war on the witches. um, And despite his grief, he's got to cut through that like a knife. First thing, did it feel like to you, especially by Mrs. Coulter's reaction? Uh, that uh, she felt like he was talking about her more so than the actual witch. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, I love that reaction. <laughs> Ruth Wilson is amazing. I love that. The other thing is, you know, Will's already in the very first episode had a vision of this knife, you know, and now we have people on the other side, the Magisterium, who know nothing about the knife, just using the knife half-heartedly as a reference of, of cutting through like a knife um do you think maybe the wording and and the I, if you even want to call it foreshadowing or thematic connection metaphor um think it's just a little bit too over the top right now i mean yeah we get it you know the whole the show's twit twitter has been telling us uh for the last two months it's about a knife but now they got to tell us in the series too uh, yeah, and even going back to season one in the intro, that knife was there in the intro, too. So it's like, what's up with this knife? If you weren't interested in the knife 
yet. Uh, they're going to make sure that you are by the end of this episode, I suppose. A- anything else about uh, Father McPhail there? He's moving up in the world, thanks to Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. Holding him up. Mrs. Coulter is dragging him along and uh, pushing him up on new heights. It's amazing. It's it's just incredible how they they basically throw shade at Mrs. Coulter all the time. And she is just like still lifting them up into their positions. I love her. And I have to have very complicated feelings about what she has to go through. And sometimes I empathize with her and sometimes I'm just like, this is good, good for you that you have to deal with this. Like, I don't feel bad for you at all. Well, some other women that aren't getting treated real well are the witches. Mm. Uh, so we go to, uh, where some of the witches actually just two, which is, um, let's call it, Witches Island, a universal theme park coming soon. But, uh, Ruta, Seraphine has given Ruta a triple D. Triple D. Uh, demonless dressing down. Oh. Didn't see a single demon in that in that scene. <laughs> mm, oh um, yeah, but you know one. you can do that with witches, so that's okay. But anyway, she's giving her a dressing down for what happened to the cardinal. Uh, Seraphina had to send a doctor Lancilius, who we met in series one in Trollison. He was the one that talked to Lyra and and uh, made her identify Seraphina's cloud pine. But he's been sent to the magisterium to try and broker a peace. Ruta's not going to apologize for her actions. She says, "No man, I got in their face. I'm going to do that." She did it to protect uh, Lyra's true name. She's ready to go, man. She's ready to, to put the armor on and just go to war with these guys, uh, which I don't blame her for. Serafina, of course, is distressed because her trying to, to reach out to Lyra isn't working. It's like Lyra's behind a veil or something. Uh, she's not in clear at all. And I just say, well, you know, look, she's two worlds away. <laughs> so it's not going to work that way uh, for you, poor witchy. I find it impressive that she could feel her at all, even since she's behind a veil. Like, so it's clearly there's a distance there, but um, I would I wouldn't have been surprised if she had no idea where she was, because yeah, of that. Yeah, I really love the fireworks between these two. It's a classic thing: uh, a divided house falls, a united house stands. Uh, but it it's one of those things where um, maybe if they weren't arguing about this they could have foreseen what was coming up at the end of the episode. Yeah. But at the same time, I can't fault either of them for their side of the argument. I, both of them are absolutely correct in their argument. They just need to find a compromise between their two extreme positions, I suppose. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. Now, in the court setting, uh, we see Mr. Lancilius here in a bit, Dr. Lancilius here in a minute, but before that, before Lancilius is brought uh, into the court, Boreal uh, arrives, and Mrs. Coulter gives him a little teasing for missing the Cardinal's funeral. Uh, she clearly didn't want to be there herself, uh, but she would have been maybe a little easier if she hadn't been alone completely, uh, getting dressed down by all those people. He's actually more interested if Mrs. Coulter is going to uh, help MacPhail keep his Cardinal position and make it permanent. And he's also asking her about Lyra father graves as Mrs. Coulter says is the biggest enemy to McPhail and after he asks uh, about Lyra the real star of the scene to me enters the room and that is Dr. Lancilius he's he's brought by two guards isn't it great Holly that if you're a guard for the magisterium I wonder if they only hire people who have demons have settled as dogs uh, a, a very specific 
type of dog too. Like these working like shepherd type dogs that you know like in the in the real world or can be used to like take people down and like dogs that police officers would. Yeah, it's super interesting. Actually I was just thinking about the scene and you were talking how many demons we get to see in in all of these scenes with the Magisterium. And I think I remember complaining last season about, you know, maybe not seeing like enough demons in certain scenes, like where there'd be a lot of people, but you don't see a lot of demons and it didn't really work. And I think they're, I feel like they're trying to make up for that a little bit um, this season. I'm pleased. They're scary dogs. Well, HBO will throw more money at anything that they think is going to be a hit uh, for sure. But, you know, after Boreal had asked, Mrs. Coulter about Asriel's man at the station, who we met last series as well, uh, Thorold. Uh, he says that he's being held prisoner. He also isn't going to tell Coulter where he's been. So he's keeping, he's asking questions about Lyra, but he's not telling her why, more or less. He's certainly not telling her where he's been. He's keeping all of that to himself. Um, but Lancilius is brought in and, um, Father Graves, who is MacPhail's main competition, takes over after Lancilius says he is attempting to reaffirm the mutual tolerance between the Magisterium and the witches. Um, and MacPhail accuses him of being a spy. He denies that. Father Graves takes over, trying to be the big shot that, you know, the DA trying to make mayor, and talks about Lancilius's parentage, uh, how he was raised uh, or not, and all of that, of course, we see affecting Mrs. Coulter very poorly because I suppose it reflects uh, her relationship with Lyra in a certain way. Uh, but Lancilius explains, once witches are attacked, he, he explains the demon ritual that, and this is interesting, witches go to this place up in the north that their demons can't go, and uh, it allows a certain degree of separation without breaking uh, the soul. So once Lancilia says this ends up, of course, in raging grave, he calls him out for heresy uh, and MacPhail is forced to take charge and pass judgment. And he sentences Lancilius to eight years hard labor and demon captivity. <sighs> That's sad. I wonder what demon captivity means. Ooh, it doesn't sound good. I, I mean, no. if it's like we see later in the episode, we see Thorold and he's got his demon with him, mm-hmm. you know. So uh, that doesn't seem as bad. I, I'm not exactly. Is demon captivity more like what we saw uh, Mrs. Coulter doing? With Maybe with the that witch. witch. Yeah. With yeah. the demon in a cage. Ugh. I don't have a demon, but just thinking about it makes me physically ill, which I guess is a testament to Pullman's writing and the show portraying the demons. Cause I feel like just thinking about it is causing me, a really sick pain in my stomach and it's like none of this is real but uh, it's i don't know it's real in my head wow um it's awful it's awful this i know i said i didn't love these magisterium scenes but this was the best one of all of them i did like this scene a lot (laughs) boreal questioning coulter about where lyra is was um it, it was fun it was fun to watch him like kind of tease her because we know that he knows where she is and he's not giving it up and even though he's kind of, kind of complimenting her and flattering her, and he even says a line, something along the lines where she would make a better cardinal than any of these guys. So he's like buttering her up 
staying on her good side, but also withholding that information from her. So it makes you just kind of wonder, what does Boreal have planned for Mrs. Coulter? Like, they're, he's clearly going to be in cahoots with her as far as it serves him. At what point is he going to maybe use this information against her? Or, I don't know. It was really interesting. Yeah, I, I guess you... It seems he... He seems independently ambitious, right? He's got his own kind of thing going on. So I I get the sense from Boreal that he's going to use anybody and anything that he can to get what he wants. Yeah. uh, And we're still, how he feels about it. We're still very unclear on what his motivations are, right? Like, we, and all we know is that whatever Mrs. Coulter is doing is helping him because he specifically asked if she was going to be able to keep Father McPhail in his position. So, which would serve him. But yeah, no, mis- myster- mysterious, sneaky, boreal. Yeah, you mentioned the demons earlier. Uh, I did not like Father Graves' demon. That freaking spider creeped the heck out of me. I don't get scared by spiders very often. I don't like spiders, but I don't. I don't get scared by them. But that one, the way it scurried from shoulder to shoulder as he was raging and ramping, that just totally creeped me out. I have a confession. Uh-huh. I, I missed a spider. I didn't see it at all. Both times I watched it, didn't see it. Now I got to go back and look for a spider. Oh, yeah. The spider on, on Graves' shoulder. Uh, awful. Awful. But, uh, you can't really see it in great detail. Uh, okay. It just, just, yeah, I think it was more its actions. It was acting like a spider act. So that, that was uh, good animation as far as I'm concerned. I've always been impressed by the way that the people for uh, Peter Jackson uh, did Shelob. Mm-hmm. For for Lord of the Rings, and the and the spiders for uh, I guess the Hobbit also, but um, yeah, anytime they get that motion right, that's that's when I freak out. Ooh, I'm with On, you. I'm with you in general. I'm not afraid of spiders. I will uh, pick up a spider and put it outside before I kill it. I love all of the authorities creatures. <laughs> all of the authorities creatures. Uh, one of the authorities creatures that I love, of course, is Doctor Lancilius. That guy rocks. Yes. He took that with such dignity. That guy is the epitome of a peaceful protester. Right Definitely. There. Yeah. Loved it. After court, uh, both Mrs. Coulter and McPhail, they uh, agree that uh, neither of them respect uh, Father Graves very much. Uh, they don't like him. Coulter actually urges McPhail to begin taking some actions against the witches that will uh, speak louder than the, the rantings of Graves. She basically says, step up and be a man, you know, because she could do it. Kill the witches if he wants to say the cardinal. I love uh, how Mrs. Coulter just, just Tasmic fail, can just twist him, mm-hmm. you know, with every word that she speaks. She can just make him, uh, well, he's just her servant. Yeah. That's basically puppet. what it is. He's a puppet. They're all her little puppets. And yeah. it's amazing. Like we just talked about earlier, they, they go from basically belittling her to end up doing whatever she wants anyway. So much power. Damn. Yeah, Ruth Wilson just knocked this episode out of the park. What episode does she not? Father McPhail. He's He's got to get a little double A. Double A. Authority assurance. Uh. He's got to have his demon with him and a candle because that's important too, evidently. In order to do some uh, airship witch cleansing uh, is brought to him to sign. Also, he gets some well wishes offered for the vote on on becoming the permanent cardinal, I suppose. He ends up having a conversation with his demon about how 
Uh, all of this uh, was a necessary sin, which I believe includes killing the cardinal as well as what he's about to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, his uh, his demon, Octavia, mm-hmm. is saying, you know, it's a sin nonetheless. So you got to atone by uh, holding your hand out over this candle. And I'll sit here and hiss with you. <laughs> I loved Octavius uh, hissing with him. as he was He was grunting and she was hissing. But yeah, that's Lindsay Duncan who plays demon octavia i had to watch the credits to get that name right but i i love that have you ever noticed how in these movies when when it's when they're trying to portray the church as bad they do terrible things and then they go and they flog themselves Mm -hmm. i guess this was the uh i guess this was the authority version of flogging yeah for sure that's a skink, by the way. That uh, that that lizard, that the demon, is a is a skink. If in case you didn't know, if you oh, are interested okay. in those things, um, I was like, oh, look, a skink. They're everywhere. What's up with the crack in the wall? It's really it's really weird. Um, it's it's like not a whole room. I thought it was just a window. Oh, is it a window? Okay, that's a weird window. But there's a makes, shot. That kind of makes sense. Magist- yeah, there's a shot of the magisterium and the way it's laid out. You see the outside shot of it. I, I think you can kind of see thin windows um, on the outside of, of that building, but I'm not sure. Um, don't quote me on that, folks. Listen, or, the- or do and come back at me on Twitter. Again, at Musical Concepts. Or you can tweet to at the Dust Podcast on Twitter. It's an interesting room design for sure. And you go pray into the light. I don't know. I thought it was weird. Um, just And the imagery kind of works with the intro and like cut, you know, through the logo. And But even though it's this one in the room, it goes straight down. Whereas like in the logo, it's like diagonal. That's just interesting imagery. Yeah, not only that, but it reminded me of its own kind of cell. And I can only imagine that working for the Magisterium uh, or within the Magisterium is a prison all itself. Absolutely. I think so, too. Good call. Yeah. Mrs. Coulter makes her way to the cells and uh, visits Azrael's old assistant, Thorold, who was mentioned earlier by Boreal. Uh, she scolds him, of course, for she gave him every chance to escape. She gave him all the chances in the world. But then uh, she tells him that she's worried that Lyra is in danger. And he tells her, hey, she was at the lab. And uh, that freaks her out. And he also says that Azrael was willing to do the intercision to use that energy to do the window. But, of course, uh, he had Roger instead, so he didn't have to do that. Uh, Mrs. Coulter figures out that Lyra has followed Azrael through the window that he made. She marches out doing her uh, world-famous hallway walk, which she does uh, at least once a season, maybe three or four times a season. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. But the thing is, is that the way she was reacting to Thorold, I can never tell. I mean, Ruth Wilson's a great actress, of course, but we know that Mrs. Coulter's equally as good an actress, so I never know if she's actually horrified by what might happen to, to Lyra or if she's just thinking how she can, or she's horrified because it might ruin her plans. Ooh, ah, mm, interesting. I felt that Mrs. Coulter, that was like her being ex- the most genuine in that moment. Um, mm, okay. For me, I, I I don't know, but I feel, I always feel that way when it's about Lyra. I felt like, no, she was really worried when she walked out of there. She, I think she was truly scared for Lyra, not knowing what was going to happen to her, where she was. Also a little bit scared just for her own, you know, sake and plans and what that would mean reflecting on her, but more felt like that was her mother moment in this, in this episode. Like that was her being a mom. 100%. I'm just never sure. I just throw my hands up and go, do I like you? Do I not like you in this moment? I don't know. Uh, 
I but, liked her in that moment because I felt like she let Thorold off easy, you know? Like, she could have been angry at him for withholding this information from her, even if this is the first time they're meeting. Like, but she wasn't angry. She, like, she gives him a genuine thank you and then leaves. I'm like, wow, that... That, that's what made it real for me is just how she treated the role after he gave her that information. She was, I wouldn't, I don't want to say kind, but she was, she, she was genuine. I don't know. She was like, Oh, okay. Go. And I need it. I need to go now. Bye. So we move on to the Magisterium airships. They're approaching the witch's Island. They're loading up bombs as they go. Meanwhile, the higher ranking Magisterium clergy are being walked in by their guard dog dogs getting locked into the courtroom to to vote on a new cardinal. And uh, thus begins this fantastic montage of the clergy voting MacPhail as the cardinal. Serafina and Ruta and the other witches are watching their sacred place being burned by the bombs uh, from a nearby shore. And it's all done in a double S. Double S. A slow-mo showcase. Mm. You know what? I, I, was gonna, I was just about to say, this felt like it dragged on, and that's probably why, because it was in slow motion. Um, oh, I felt like man. It was, yeah, it was a good build-up, but like, I, I could have used just a little less of it, if I'm being honest. I just... Mm, it was too slow loading up those barrels. Explosive. <laughs> naphtha barrels it was ominous it really was but i just could have used like 45 seconds less of it okay i understand for me it was a great visual tension builder i i loved uh it's just like well you know what they're gonna do but when are they gonna do it uh so to me that worked uh it also worked because of course again uh mr balf score was incredible in that that's a that's a new theme uh, that was from the music anthology of season two. Uh, we're going to look at it at a later podcast, uh, probably the podcast that drops later this week with the fan call-in show. And uh, by the way, talkshoe.com. That's talk like what we do and shoe like what we wear. Go there and search for His Dark Materials. You'll find us on Tuesday nights, 8.30 Eastern Time, Tuesday nights after a new episode airs on HBO. Uh, But A New Cardinal Rises is the name of that theme, and we're going to take a look at that in a future podcast. I loved the slow-mo of of the witches uh, reacting to the explosion. Uh, Personally, I I think that uh, Serafina and Ruta and all of those witches, uh, I know that it was mentioned earlier in the episode how they seduce men and and whatever. But believe me, those, those witches... With that look, to me, that made them just as human as anybody else, regardless of their powers or their cloud pine. They were uh, refugees of war, and that that was horrifying to me. Uh, so I really – and uh, just the expressions on their faces was amazing to me. Hmm. Interesting. They burn witches in their world too. Good call. Good call. It's the, uh, what do they call those? The witch trials. The Salem uh, witch without trials. the trial. Yeah. Just um, witch execution. Yeah. I guess it's faster than, than on a stake. So they got that going for them. Also, I saw a lot of people complain online about just kind of inconsistency with the witches and how last week we saw Rudiscotti being a badass and taking down a lot of people on one of those airships. And then, you know, maybe they were outnumbered a bit, but 
seems like there was a lot of witches that maybe could have they they didn't even try to do anything to stop them. Do you have a take on that or a reason? Holly, it makes me wonder. Uh, I, you're right. They should have reacted uh, or been proactive about it. But did you see some of those witches flying up into the air behind Ruta and Serafina? I think that they're going to uh, make sure that the Magisterium pays for what they did. Okay. Well, I hope so. I, I hope that's the case. I look forward to that. But it just seemed like in the moment they they weren't doing anything and they were just kind of letting it happen. And after we saw them be real badass both last week and last season at Bullfinger, you know, they, they had – Serafina had a pretty badass moment there too, right? So, yeah, And they've got a whole conclave there. You're absolutely right. They could have taken all those ships down, you would think, before they even got there. Mm-hmm. So that's the god in the machine right there. That's them just uh, – we get, we got to have this happen to motivate the witches so we can't have them do anything to prevent it from happening. Yeah. So uh, that's one of those story problems, one of those Marinese knots that you run into from time to time. Mrs. Coulter approaches the Cardinal McPhail. He is now uh, the official Cardinal, and she congratulates him. And uh, then lets all of her aggression out quietly, <laughs> which I loved. Uh, and she she tells him, you know, this is basically was my plan. I'm going to put you in power because, uh, you know, I got the goods on you, man. And I'm going to use that. And you're going to leave me alone and let me do what I want. Whereas all of these other cardinals and other clergy people have been preventing me from doing what I want. Uh, because if you don't, I'm going to ruin your career. So when she starts to leave, McPhail asks if she's going to find Asriel. <laughs> She finds that funny. She says, no, she has something infinitely more valuable to search for. And she makes her way down the corridor. And not once, but twice, she does the Mrs. Coulter hallway walk. And uh, just like her original theme, Mrs. Coulter is back. She's been suffering these guys for too long. She is now her own woman once again. God, that's badass. But I, I just, it felt so conflicting to me because I, I want to say I applaud her. For, for manipulating things exactly the way she wanted to. But at the same time, uh, what she's going to do with that, uh, I worry about because I don't want her to be near Lyra. All right. I and agree. I said this last week, too. Uh, she's really easy to root for when it, she's taking down the patriarchy all on her own. And then I stop rooting for her as soon as she wants to hurt one of our, our friends like Lyra or, or the witches or anybody else that we like. So, yeah. Oh, she's so good. And I think uh, I think it's not once or twice a season. I think it's once or twice an episode that she's going to walk down the hallway with authority the way she does. It's almost every it's almost every episode. I'm not I mad about it. <laughs> I'm not mad about it either. I love that theme. Uh, when that when that comes on, I'm just all giddy. It was the first it was the first piece of music that I ever heard Lauren Balfour composed for this. I hadn't heard the main theme yet. Uh, it got me instantly, and uh, now that's just kind of like when when that music starts, I I get up and I start uh, <laughs> fist pumping myself. Oh my god! <laughs> so that's just the way I go. Any other final thoughts about? Because that's the end of the episode. I, Any other final thoughts? I was just gonna say one more thing about Mrs. Coulter in this episode. I think this is the first time we see her wearing black, and damn, she looks good. She looks good in everything, but like even scarier when she's in black. When she's in black, when she's in mourning, I guess, uh, even though she's not really mourning that girl, <laughs> no. but when she's in mourning, uh, we all better mourn for ourselves because she is intimidating. 
So with the episode concluded, are you ready to play some games, Holly? Let's play some games. All right. We'll start with your least favorite game, of course, because that's how I like to torture you. Just like Demon Captivity, it's time to play three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. What were your three words to describe this episode, Holly? <laughs> it, I'm just realizing I put it in my rating, but it's a backpack pan. I, I just feel so bad for Pan having to be in that backpack. I don't understand. He could have, he could have just been like a butterfly, like flying behind Lyra. I don't know. No one would have known the difference. Poor Pan. Justice for Pan. That's my three words. Holly's episode rating would have been exactly the same of mine if it just hadn't. If Pan had just been a butterfly you know, on his shoulder, it lost the whole point. So. Sorry. Uh, lost a whole point. That's that. okay. You know what? They will use that money that they saved on CGI in those scenes and put it to better use in a future episode. They put it into the explosions at the end of the episode. That's all they did. Okay. Triple E is my three words, Holly. What's a triple E? Exquisite enlightening exhibition. Ooh. That's what this show was. Uh, I loved it. Uh, from Mrs. Coulter's walk to Lancelius' explanation of how witches work. That was another uh, three words that I had considered, how witches work. But the effects were fantastic. The delve into the psyche of everybody. Will, the Magisterium, Mrs. Coulter. I mean, this episode, and of course, just the deep, 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 deep score. Uh, this one got me good. Uh, all of those things were exquisite and enlightening. It was quite an exhibition of that. <laughs> we got a uh, Twitter reaction to this episode from a friend in the UK who saw the episode before the US did and it is from at mile underscore L underscore V that is Mylene Valet. Thank you so much for submitting uh, and very kind of you also considering uh, it says three words Mary Dust Mary. Anything else might have spoilers. So we appreciate you trying to take care of the fans who don't want to be spoiled. Thank it's, you very it, much. It's very hard, we know. That's why yeah, I don't, that's why I don't say a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. Uh, Holly, what what's worse? Playing three words? Or trying to come up with a what's worse for this episode? Both are hard. Yeah. Holly hates my games. She doesn't like my games. I think I'm going to say three words is worse because I've, I've been doing it for so long. I like what's worse better because it's it's new and fun. It's fresh. It's new. So this is where we come up with our own what's worse in the episode. We try to keep, keep them kind of light uh, just for the sake of, of not totally ruining your day. Uh, and then one of us chooses one side of the argument and the other one has to argue the other side. You can catch this kind of argument on many of the Double P podcasts that are out there as well. Catfish and Bubba get credit for starting this game. Uh, you can find 
the Double P family of podcasts under one heading in Twitter. That's the word double, the letters PHQ. At the word double, the letters PHQ on Twitter will get you to submit your own what's worse for any of the franchises that they are covering. Do you want to go first, Holly, with your what's worse or me? I'll go first. Okay. What, Matthew, uh, do you think is worse? Um, Talking to a stranger collector or not realizing that you are talking to someone from your own world. Okay. So if I choose one, you have to argue the other one, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to take the easy route. And I'm going to say not realizing you're talking to someone from your own world. Okay. That's definitely worse because that can definitely come back and bite you when you least expect it. It's no, if you don't know who they are, but they know who you are, you're in trouble. That's definitely worse. Oh, I don't know, though. Talking to a stranger, like, period, is, it can be very bad. You know, at least in this situation, we know he knows who he's talking to, but... If not, if they didn't know each other, he just would have been like, he just would be a creepy perv that's trying to like pick her up for sex trafficking. So, hmm, I'm going to say mine's worse because of the circumstances. We're obviously not going to agree on this. So we need to put it to the poll. Check the polls at the Dust Podcast on Twitter and we will have the polls up there for you to vote on. Which do you think is worse? Uh, Talking to stranger collectors? Or not realizing you're talking to someone from your own world. Holly, I've got a better one for you. Yeah, it's better. Which is worse? Telling someone how to dress or ruining a carpet by kicking over tea purposefully? I mean, those are both pretty mean. They're, 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 just, they're just flat mean. Uh, but which one are you going to argue? I think, I think it's worse to tell someone how to dress. Because you, if you're telling someone how to dress, that's like... I don't know. That's cutting into their personality, their self-esteem. Like you, you're, you could be inflicting emotional damage on somebody for telling them how to dress. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good argument, but it's completely wrong Mm. because you can also inflict damage to someone, not only psychologically by destroying their home, uh, make ruining their living room where they have to get, you know, they have to look at that stain every day because they never could get it all out. But also, they might have to just rip up the carpet and and put down new carpet. I think that that's just horrible. You've not only hurt them psychologically, but you've also hurt them financially. Well, guess what? Stains can be removed with cleaning products and carpet cleaners. There's machines and chemicals that can fix that problem. It's going to take... But the psychological damage is there as well. No. Why did he kick that tea over on It was an accident. It was not an accident. He did it as a distraction. It was an accident. As far as she's concerned, it was an accident. It was just a kid. He's just a boy. Boys will be boys. I've got to walk past. (laughs) I feel like you get those carpet cleaners there every day. Every day I've got to walk past that and say, what did I do to make that boy so scared that he accidentally kicked over that tea? I mean. It's psychological damage. They look like they can afford to get the carpets cleaned without having to get their hands dirty at all just saying well you're just asking her once again you're asking the rich to carry the load for the poor people (laughs) every day for the rest of my life (laughs) folks if you agree with me be sure to vote on twitter once again this poll will be up telling someone how to dress is not worse than ruining someone's carpet by kicking over tea and i will say again 
purposefully. That's awful. That's mean. That's horrible. I mean, Better Homes and Gardens is just out to get him now. But you can vote on the poll, and uh, you can uh, tell me how wrong I am by voting on the poll unanimously for Holly's argument of telling someone how to dress. <laughs> Speaking of getting your feedback, how about we dive into some of this feedback we got for this episode from our friends in the UK uh, who got a chance to see this episode before the US? Holly, can you tell us what our friends at His Dark Material said? Uh, his Dork? You mean His Dork Materials? I do. Okay. Uh, literally, episode one now feels like a fantastic episode, but still a warm-up compared to episode two. For us, Lyra really becomes Lyra for the first time in the last episode, driving the motors of the story and demanding to know what's going on. No tippy-toeing around in wonderment of what's going on. There's a sudden fired-up, fierce sense of motivation to everything she does. Uh, it's a bit like PP, famous double P. Double P? That, I don't know. Oh, Philip Pullman. Uh, like the double P famously said, paraphrases, you must focus on the girl, Lyra, and everything else will come. She's racing to find answers, sway other people, influence them, and boldly step into our world and not give a damn. It was great to see done her the world of good. Characterizations are spot on from everyone. Easter eggs and references that will make you smile abound. So, yes, definitely agree. We will get more into those Easter eggs in our special book spoilery section. Yes, we shall. Our friend at one dart Lou on Twitter, that's Louise, uh, sends this uh, very thoughtful message to us. I don't want to ruin anything, but you are going to love this episode. There is a scene that will emotionally break you. Oh, she was right. Louise was right. You know us yeah. so well. <laughs> she knows us so well. At Gorgavan R uh, tweets us their favorite parts of the app for episode two of season two as well. The Botanical Garden, Lyra and Will, jokes, and even a favorite score part, which I'm thinking they're just saying from, because I'm not sure that we've heard this theme yet in the show, uh, but favorite score part from the music anthology, The Subtle Knife. I like that. I like that. At Damon's in Dust, with two T's at the end, says, uh, ask this question. Y'all think that Miss C is a daughter of a witch? She can separate from her demon quite a bit. The way she gets all huffy and puffy when a ritual is mentioned. The way she knows about Cloud Pine so much as well. Tell me what you think. And she uh, and demons and dust with two T's actually sent this out to several of us. Uh, to Twitagaze as well as his dork materials. So I uh, appreciate that very much, you sending, uh, including us in that question. What do you think, Holly? Is uh, Mrs. Coulter the daughter of a witch? Hmm. I don't know, but I did, I did notice how they, and I, was, I forgot to mention this when we talked about it, but during that scene, you know, they definitely cut to her when that ritual was mentioned. And it does raise questions because we do know that Mrs. Coulter and her monkey can be pretty far apart and she can handle it better than most humans with demons can so it's really interesting it seems like it could explain some of her characterizations just how i don't know i want to say witches are manipulative but like her powers of manipulation are really strong i wonder mm. if that could be a witch's trait i don't know i'll have more to say on this in the book's talk at the okay, end of the podcast, that, for sure. That sounds good. To me, um, the thing that 
also, though, I, I just wonder, I, I mean, I can't foresee, I mean, obviously, Mrs. Coulter might be an exception, but we've also not only seen Mrs. Coulter be able to separate from her demon, but we've also seen her abuse her demon. She, we've seen her hit her own demon, uh, which has to cause her own self-pain. Um, she punished the poor golden monkey that, the poor golden monkey, it's a, it's as atrocious as she is sometimes, but uh she punished it uh, after uh, Lyra uh, had discovered about the, the separation in the first series. So well, I, I, I don't know if there's a parallel there or not. We can talk more about it in the book section, I do suppose. Uh, speaking of the book section, we have one other tweet from at Dragonfell UK, and we're going to split up part of this tweet in uh, this TV only section and we'll answer the other part in the book only section. Uh, but in response to series two, episode two, uh, Jonathan tells us again, that's at Dragonfell UK loved it. The pacing with Lyra and will is slow, but it needs that to allow their relationship to grow. Mm. I think that's all that we can say about uh, from that part of the tweet. So thank you for those thoughts. You know what? I, I didn't really think about the pacing between uh, Lyra and Will. I thought it took a great leap forward in that scene in, in the botanical garden where they go. They basically went from feeling each other out in this episode um, to it looks like establishing a real trust between each other uh, at the garden. Yeah, I didn't think any of the I think the Will and Lyra pacing for me, it's working great for me. I love it. And I think we had feedback last week about things moving fast. I didn't agree with that. And I don't agree with it moving slow either. I think we're right where we need to be in the second episode. I think it's I think it's going it's going good. Maybe I'm just not good at talking about pacing or thinking about it because I felt like the magisterium stuff were the slower scenes that dragged for me, and I just wanted to get through them to get back to Will and Lyra. And I took a different approach. I thought the magisterium scenes were very interesting and and somewhat emotional, compelling. Some of them, so I I really enjoyed them. But folks, we want to know what you think. We're about to leave the TV-only section, and at the end of the end music, we'll be into books. Uh, but if you have any thoughts about what we've said so far, feel free to tweet at the Dust Podcast on Twitter, the Dust Podcast on Twitter. You can send emails to just dustpodcast at gmail dot com. Sorry, I couldn't get the the that was already taken for some reason. Three one four two six nine zero four two one is the phone number. Please leave us a voicemail. Leave us a voicemail. And uh, don't forget that we are also, if you want to talk to our bosses, if you want to complain about how we act on this podcast, <laughs> if you want to say Matt uses too many doubles and he doesn't use them as well as you guys do, the Podfathers, Bubba and Catfish, feel free to tweet at the word double, the letters PHQ on Twitter, or you can even hit them up on Facebook, facebook.com slash the word double, the letters PHQ, or you can comment on the YouTubes that are presented on their YouTube page. The videos, you can leave comments there. Just search for Double P Media on YouTube, or you can simply use this little cheat URL, youtube.com slash user slash fit and trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. Uh, the Mandalorian uh, is uh, a show that they are covering currently, so look for a Double P. A Double P. A Parsec Passion. Oh. And uh, you'll find them wherever you get your podcasts as far as we go please do rate subscribe and leave us written reviews that's what helps us stay your 40th favorite podcast out of 15 active podcasts covering this series
As for my personal Twitter, you can find me at Musical Concepts. Holly, if people want to bypass me completely and make sure that only you get the messages, you know, berating me for my lack of podcast skills, how can they do so? <laughs> I'm at Hunt Pants on Twitter. H-U-N-C Pants. I don't know. I've never tried spelling it before. That was weird. Sorry. It's, Just well, like my like, Twitter handle. It's weird. It's weird. I'll bring it back. That's <laughs> the inside jokes. We're way inside <laughs> on the jokes now. It's time to let you inside of the book reader section too after the end music. But in the meantime, we will let you go. Remember, TV only people, if you don't want to be spoiled about anything, don't stick around anymore. We love you for sticking around this far. We'll talk to you next time on The Dust Podcast. Tweet the podcast at The Dust Podcast. Send emails to dustpodcast at gmail.com or call 314-269-0421. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. of Double P Media, doublepmedia.com. Hey, you're still here. Why are you still here? It's because you're a book reader, right? Either that or you don't mind being spoiled about things that we talk about in this section that might ruin the rest of the TV series for you. Or maybe you like that kind of stuff, and I'm okay with that. I really am. But don't say that we didn't warn you. Here we go, book talk. It's what we like to call Double B. Double B. Book bitchin'. Ah, yep. Holly, what you got for me? Oh my god. So I watched this episode by myself, and then when my roommate came home from out of town, we watched the show together too. So I watched it again with her, and I was taking my notes to prepare for the podcast. And when we get to that scene, I wrote bench pretty large in my notebook, and I just hear my roommate go, why did you write bench so large? I was like, I can't tell you. I'm so sorry. Ah! And it's it's so funny. So I guess from her perspective, it's just a scene in a park. It's not a big deal. Except now I probably put some doubt in her mind. I'm like, she's going to be waiting for this bench to come back, and she's going to be waiting until the very end. The very end of the series to see it. So, yeah. Whew. Man. Well, I mean, the internet broke as well. Um, so I imagine that there were lots of people in your roommate's position that were like, well, what are they talking about? Yeah, I hope I hope so. At least for our casual, but on on social media present viewers. So like there's so many different types of fans like my roommate. We watch a lot of the same stuff. Does she go on Twitter and, like, look at what other people are saying like I do? No, she don't. She just watches it and then moves on with her life. Oh, lucky her. I know, right? It must be so easy being her. Like, just just move on with your life and know and, and not have to overthink everything that you saw. Hmm. I'm not kidding. I mean, I saw about 50 benches pop up on the uh, hashtag His Dark Materials timeline oh my at the God. same time. That's it was crazy. Uh, oh my god lots of crying emojis um i I mean oh my and yeah there's lots of feels that especially i guess if you consider um i I love the way the show has approached this because this is the place where they first start to trust each other so it makes sense that this is where they would choose to you know like uh two quantum particles uh chose to be uh the same being in one place uh or at two different places at the same time 
That's sure. so sad. Oh my god, I didn't cry. I like I didn't cry, but man, it was just. I'm sorry. I don't have words. It's just like oh, it's so emotional. To, I guess to decompress from the emotional side of it, um, it was very interesting watching our UK viewers be like, okay, but that's not in the Botanical Gardens, so it's the location is actually not accurate. And I don't know if you already knew this, Matt, but they, in the Botanic Gardens at Oxford, they have, they have this bench there that it's like a, an homage to his dark materials where they have a bench with a plaque and like a statue of Pan. So, like, there is a real bench in the real Oxford Botanical Garden that addresses, like, it's for his dark materials. It's, like, it's there. This place where they shot the scene clearly is not that place. It's a, it's a different place completely. And people on Reddit already, like, picked it out where it is. I can't remember. And it, I'm not familiar with areas out there anyway because I've never been there. But uh, I just thought that was really interesting. Nice. Well, you know, uh, leave it to the fandom to find something wrong with the most beautiful scene ever. Like upset. Well, I think some people were upset, but like, how would you, then you would have to? What were they going to do? They're going to like remove the the statue and the look, look at from what the their, place their, their CGI can, so budget is, shoot. Holly. Look at oh, what yeah, their CGI right. budget is. They could easily black paint that okay. out. I don't know. I I don't know. It's fine. I like I said for me, a, a, a dumb American who has not been abroad ever in her life. You know, I can I can buy it, where they shot the scene is is beautiful, and that seems like a really lovely place for them to each go and sit at their in their own spots and think about each other. You know, yeah, it's fine. You know, I, you know, I, speaking of ahead. homages, though, I and mean, not to get off the subject, but did you see that uh, that three D artwork that they did right in front of the Pit Rivers? Which is a three D like it's like looking into a window. <gasps> the window, the yes, I did see that. That is so cool. That was beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't remember the. I should properly credit the artist, but I don't know their name. Um, it, but even BBC uh, on their website has put up a uh, has put up that thing that they put out on the internet that showcases it and shows people visiting it, and uh, that's beautiful. So can't film there anymore. <laughs> Either, I'm, I'm you know. gonna drop. I'm gonna drop my Venmo, and then if people want to donate money so I can go and visit it, that would be really cool. I'm just kidding. I'm not gonna drop my Venmo. I don't. I don't want your money. But yeah, I mean, I really do want to go. So, what the the amount of money that our podfathers are paying us here to do this podcast? That's not enough <laughs> to cover it. <laughs> we know how much you make, Bubba. <laughs> uh, let's save the Arctic. Okay. The Pitt Rivers exhibit and the True North. I, I love those. You know the whole idea of uh, the fact that, and, and it's true in our world for sure that you know global warming has caused a great deal of panic for the Arctic. Um, but I love the fact that even back then, Pullman's books made this um, huge amount of energy a side effect of that being kind of a greenhouse effect, right? Uh, in a way, a, 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 an effect of climate change because. In, in, later on, we see uh, the way Yorick is affected. He has to lead his bears to uh, uh, try to lead them to the, the, the mountains uh, away from, mm-hmm. from the north, uh, and that doesn't work out so well. So I, I, I love that those posters uh, that Lyra found were all about saving the Arctic and, and how that's kind of almost a quasi-multiverse, I guess, foreshadowing for what we're going to see happen in Lyra's world. For sure. What else you got? Back on that scene, still with uh, Lyra and Will, what they're talking about, and Lyra promises she won't betray him. 
And that that just made me really sad because in, we know in the book she is going to accidentally betray him, and it's awful, and she feels terrible about it. And Boreal uses like the oldest trick of the book by just like kind of like firing off these questions, and then it's like, oh, so how's your friend? And blah blah blah. And how's Will doing? And he's like, and then she answers, and then she's like, oh shoot, I just gave Will away. Now he knows. So that's what I was thinking about. I don't know if they're going to kind of do that reveal the same way. I kind of thought they would just by her making a big deal about how she's not going to betray him. Like, I feel like she has to betray him now. Yeah, even exactly. If on accident. Exactly. I feel the same way. I feel like they've they've set it up. It, it was basically a hit you in the head uh, for a book reader, I think, a moment because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it's like it, this this way there can be no doubt. We, we've seen the way uh, her betrayal of Roger has affected her. So um, I imagine they're even going to play this even more to the hilt with Daphne uh, when they, when they do that stuff. Okay. And we kind of discussed uh, briefly in the earlier section that uh, Will didn't have grandparents in the original trilogy. Uh, but you said you might have something more to say about that. Um, oh, forgive me if I already said all of this and without realizing it, but I think they're mentioned in the book, but they, they kind of mentioned the, the, the rift between his mom and his grandparents because of the disappearance. So he didn't really know them. I don't think he really thinks about them too much in the books, like as people he can go to, to keep him safe. I think he's probably mad at them because he got mad at his mom. I don't, I don't remember the full context of that, but just watching the episode, I'd forgotten. Like I, I was like grandparents, like, well, we definitely don't see Will's grandparents in the books. Like, just, is this going to be just Lord Boreal just waiting in the wings? Like, and you know, <laughs> they're just going to bring him to Boreal's address and this is your grandparents' house. And then he would just have him. Um, I was just immediately suspicious. And then surprised that like, Oh no, he actually does have his grandparents. There's his dad's picture. Okay. And then when his dad, and when the, when grandpa gets up and goes, calls the police, I was like, uh-huh, okay, yes, I was right to be suspicious. Like, they were let, you know, they were informed that Will might try to come looking for them and that they need to contact the police if he does. So it all kind of worked out the same regardless for me. Um, yeah. I don't know. It was a good addition. I, despite everything I said about not loving the Magisterium scenes in this episode, I really think everything they're adding that's not in the books is is adding value to to the show and any kind of little changes they're making for the season so far have been for the better uh, in general. I think this is a good example of that. Well, for me, it was the one scene that just, I mean, other than establishing that the, the detective inspector is still on the case, that he's still on Lord Boreal's payroll. I, I didn't see much purpose to this scene except just to give Will some more emotional height. And that's fine. I mean, if that's the purpose of it, then that's fine. Uh, but I, I didn't really, eh, it, it seemed like an odd way to do it, to amp up for Will. I, I would have thought that he could have done that. They could have done more at the lawyer's office, actually. But. Mm, yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know. I liked the, I love the tea spilling and how his grandma reacted to it. and was just like, oh, I have to get up and get something to clean this right away. And I'm like, perfect, get out, Will. And he ran. He just ran. I was like, good boy. Yeah, yeah. Again, the psychological trauma that will cause that poor grandmother. No, no, stop it. We're not playing okay. that game anymore, okay? Don't feel uh, bad for that. Why do you have that, white carpet, lady? Come on. That game <laughs> is over. But I had totally uh, forgotten about playing Iching. 
uh, I, I totally forgotten that that was a big part of uh, Mary's storyline uh, as she moves on, as she heads off to. And God, I only I've only read this name in my head. I've never read it aloud. So Mufala, Malefa, Malefa, Malefa. Okay. I it's all, it's all in the accent. I'm trying not to get ahead of myself with the excitement for Mulefa because I'm honestly really worried that it's going to look weird. You know, like it's going to just be. Do you think they're going to have to tone that down? I don't, I, I don't just know. a little bit in I, order to because it, it's just in the books. Your imagination can run wild, and it, and it does seem so outlandish it, and bizarre. I, I mean, her whole storyline is just her by herself i can't imagine they're going to be spending i mean they have to do enough for her to be able to figure out how to focus and, and see the dust right yeah i don't think they're gonna not give us melifa i just think they're probably thinking about about it really hard how to make it look and and i'm sorry melifa lovers if this is like a, i don't i want to be offending you but it just it would just imagining with the show we're watching now and then trying to picture these creatures in it later, it just doesn't seem to fit. Even though that makes no sense because we have all these other worlds and there's no reason why it shouldn't. But I don't know. It's just really strange to think about. It might just be a little jarring at first. I think, and that's how it was for me just reading it. It was jarring until you kind of get used to it. I gotta say, love the bit where when she's talking about how she used the cave on herself and she's and like she looks at looking, the amber and she's looking at the amber and i'm like oh my yes. god oh. but yeah they, it's these little things that just get me like super fired up and excited yeah about what's coming that was amazing uh, i i loved that that was just a fantastic little easter egg fantastic yep, yep. and it's angels it's angels we have i'm just gonna say it it's the dust, the talking beings, the thing communicating through the alethiometer and through the cave is angels. Just just the whole thing about Mary was was fantastic, but also just the look of the cave itself. I love that. And uh, of course, last week in this section, I called that uh, that that thing that we saw in the opening credits was, of course, the cave. And uh, I don't think I called it that. I think I called it the machine. You called it the machine. I keep calling. Yeah, but that's what I meant. That's the same thing. Uh, so take different. time to pat myself on the back. Good job. I, I thought about you immediately when I saw it. I was like, oh, Matt was right. Good for him. Because I, whatever my guess was, I couldn't even remember. I was trying to think it was something else that I couldn't even think of in the moment. And I'm glad I was wrong. And I'll give myself props for Googling quantum computer and then seeing the image of the exact same thing and being like, whoa, check that wow. out. It's so neat. Way to be creative, Michael VK. Way to be creative. He's the guy that makes props. He's a follower of ours. We Yay. like him. He's very friendly. He sent us a message. Thank you he to everybody people. on the show, working on the show, that is liking our tweets. And, oh, it's so exciting. I yeah. Thank y'all. Thank y'all for appreciating yeah. us. We just appreciate you guys. Oh, mm. Yeah. Uh, Jane Tranter has been fabulous. Yes. Uh, at Michael VK has been fabulous. Uh, he, he helped design folks uh he was integral to the design of of the knife itself so uh be sure to tweet at him uh uh your appreciation when you see it because i think it looks fantastic that's so cool i love being in my real life job of, of doing demon healthcare and then seeing notifications like that um come through so yay thank y'all we do absolutely love it uh anything else about the books what else do we need to talk about yeah dr lancilius explaining 
the demon ritual seemed to, uh, which seemed to nod at Mrs. Coulter and how she can separate. We don't know how they got to that point, but I, I'm, I don't, I do not believe that Mrs. Coulter is a witch. I don't think that is why. I think she did something very similar to if you've read the Book of Dust, uh, what Malcolm Pole said had to do at the end of that book, and just basically just be separated from his demon. And then kind of like to suffer and go through this traumatic experience with without her. Um, and now they can separate, mm. which is weird that this came up. And for some reason before, way before the episode aired, I was like, I want to start reading Secret Commonwealth again. And I did. And and this is a huge, huge theme in that book of, of people that can separate from their demons and how they can and what that means and and how it looks to the other people in the world. And it's not like a super widely known thing that just any human can do this. It's, you know, it's known that the witches can do it. So it's just kind of, it's really interesting. It feels like we're bringing a lot of secret Commonwealth themes into this episode. Yeah. with That question. Speaking of which, let's get back to that tweet from at Dragonfell UK, um, who uh, had added to this tweet, but we didn't include it in the TV only section. But Jonathan says, all I'll say on that scene is that it really works in the context. I'm worried there is a longer term foreshadowing, though. Pants being so sassy. <laughs> but dare I say it? Secret Commonwealth? So this is, and folks, I have to admit, I have not read uh, past the original Trillion. So I, I'm in I'm in spoiler territory for myself. <sighs> I but, forgot you but never I, read I, this. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I no, it's all good. But I do have knowledge of some things just because you know when you're on the internet you find these things out. But Pan and, and Lyra basically stop talking to each other at some point, right? Yes, in the beginning of Secret Commonwealth, their relationship is very strained. They kind of ignore each other, and then partway through the book, Pan leaves he's like bye i'm i'm out of here and he's he's going to find answers he's going he's off on his own adventure that ultimately is to help lyra but a lot of this book they are are separated for most of it it seems like and and it's so sad watching them together even before they get separated they just they just kind of have this disdain for each other and it's it's so tragic especially when you read these books and you know what they go through but it don't you know it's oh but, but think so about close. it it's been so mistreated he gets left behind so she can go to the world of the dead he gets stuffed in a bag in the tv series i mean i'd I know, leave her too it, it honestly it, it does make sense it is addressing a trauma you know like that happened even what takes place what like eight years after his dark materials is uh, when the secret commonwealth is it, it makes sense. It makes sense that there would be some bad blood between them. And, and ultimately, it's just, what, not communicating with yourself and, you know, not, maybe not knowing who you are and kind of having, like, an identity crisis. And I think, you know, that's kind of a, a big theme around what Lyra's going through in the Secret Commonwealth, in my opinion. Um, please go listen to Girls Gone Canon, though, because they are much better, much, much better than I am at kind of diluting all this down for you. Yeah. Anything else in this uh, in this particular episode that we want to discuss from a book perspective. I was disappointed that we did not meet John Perry, but it's fine. Give me John Perry in episode three for the love of the authority. Please. Look, do, you really want to get, do you really want to get invested in that guy so much and yes. lose him? Yes. I mean, that's awful. 
I, I think they're doing us a great favor by not putting them in as much. Um, they're also depriving me of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, too. Don't forget. I'm yeah. very much looking forward to seeing him and his demon. But I won't be surprised if we don't get there yet. Um, we didn't get any Lee this week, so I think maybe next week we'll hopefully have some scenes of Lee. There. These are eight episode seasons, right? Yeah, but okay. we only get in seven because we're missing the Asriel oh, episode. Right. Oh, no, I'm sad. Man. Okay, seven. Okay, well then, I think I feel like this pacing is pretty good then, so yeah. far. And uh, you know, I, I'm expecting a big blast. I'm actually expecting a big blast of of Lee next week. Also, you just really made me sad, reminding me that we're not getting that Azrael episode. Even though I thought about it earlier today, um, now I'm just sad again. I've heard conflicting reports about what it was about. Mm. Um, I've seen things saying, "Oh, it's about him building," you know, the Republic, the Republic of, of Heaven. Heaven. Yeah, but. I've also seen things saying, well, it's really just about his time in Chittagaze. Dealing with his mess, yeah. And I still don't know how that's going to affect Ruta's story. Hmm. I don't know either. We've had two episodes straight away where Ruta's been big. I mean, the way she stood up to Serafina in this episode was fantastic to me. I love that conversation. Do you think, do you think, and I think we, I was confused when we, when we did our trailer talk, um, I was got confused about which witch was which witch and which one was with Azriel and which one was with John Perry. And rereading the book, Ruta Scotty is not the one that kills John Perry, but do you think they're gonna make that change for the show and make Ruta Scotty the one that was the witch that was scorned by John Perry, leading her to murder him in front of Will and then I don't know, just kind of like make me maybe change our minds about her character. Ooh, that's a good question. Only Jane Tranter knows. Mm. Oh, and Jack Thorne. And the cast. And everybody who worked on the show. Tweet at the Dust Podcast. We're following you. Just send us a DM. Let us know. We want to know. We we desperately want to know. Anything else, Holly? Did I say give me Andrew Scott next week for the love of the authority? If not, I'm just going to say it again. About 11 times. Okay. But that's all. <laughs> Folks, if you want to talk to me about books, well, you're going to be disappointed, but you can tweet to at Musical Concepts. And Holly, if they want to talk to you about the books, how do they do? Um, you can follow me or find me on Twitter at Hunt Pants. It's weird. And yeah, I'm there sometimes. I, I'm sorry. I've, I've been very busy with work and, and things right now, but I'm going to very try very hard. If you tweet at me, I will do my best to get back to you as soon as I possibly can. Also, would like to say that I unfortunately will not be able to be on the fan call-in shows because that is my evening shift of demon healing. So um, at least for the next couple of weeks, I think after that, my schedule might change and I might be able to join uh, fans on the fan call-in show. So hopefully. Well, it'll, it'll be a much sorrier podcast without you. But I've done fan call-in shows before by myself. And folks, we would love to hear from book readers as well. Um, we'll put you in a special section, just like we put ourselves in a special section when we talk about the books. But your thoughts are always welcome. Because who hasn't read these books? Well, evidently some people haven't. But we know that you have. Well, most of you, unless you want to be spoiled. Anyway. Fan call-in show, Tuesday nights, 8.30 Eastern PM. Check our Twitter, at The Dust Podcast, for more information. Fun fact, Matt and I started podcasting together because he hosted a fan call-in show, and I called in one time, and now we're best friends. We are absolutely best friends. Uh, so we appreciate 
you supporting us the same way we support each other. And we'll see you next time on The Dust Pod.